The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended! I remember some men started prying and others started crying. Um, Partway through it, one guy got to his feet and started to run. I was scared and let that be no secret. Next thing they set the spando up there and they opened up. And there's bloody trees, bits of trees flying. And New Zealand tanks were over the other river and one of our men said to them, he said, don't start your tanks up. For five minutes, we'll be out of it. Well, some silly bugger started his tank and the Germans put over a shell and right in the middle of the bridge. It was a bitterly cold morning and I was crouched down in this damn hole and it took me two days before I could stand up straight again. Hear the stories of New Zealanders in the Italian campaign in World War II, the Courage and Valor podcast, www.newzealandersatwar.com. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.
I'm speaking with Nick Veronico, who's out here in New Zealand at the moment from the USA with the NASA SOFIA 747. Hi, Nick. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me. No problem. It's a great pleasure to have you on the uh, on the show, and I'm very grateful to our mutual friend Andy Wright, who put me on to you and uh, um, gave me the heads up, because uh, I've been seeing the photos of uh, your uh, NASA 747 down at Christchurch coming through on the Facebook feed, quite a few uh, photos coming through, and it's, it's sort of taken, an int- taken my interest, and I know I've seen it out here before as well. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what you guys are doing? What, what's the whole the whole mission that you're doing down there in Christchurch and, and elsewhere. So SOFIA is a, uh, is the stratospheric observatory for infrared astronomy. It's a 747 SP uh, that's been highly modified to hold a 2.7 meter or 100 inch uh, telescope in the back. And uh, it collects uh, data at infrared wavelengths. So we're here. This is our third trip to Christchurch. Uh, we come in your winter uh, when the National Science Foundation's U.S. Antarctic program uh, is on break. So we get to use their facilities at uh, pretty cheap costs. And uh, ah, right. So we bring us to bring the 747, and uh, you know, a crew of people. We'll have over eight weeks. We'll have about a hundred people. Will have rotated through. Wow. So it's a big, big effort. Yeah. And, and why, the, why Christchurch in particular? Um, why, why do you use that as a base? Well, again, the uh, Antarctic program's not here. And we come to the Southern Hemisphere so we can see things uh, that we can't see or are extremely low on the horizon from the Northern Hemisphere. So uh, on this trip, we're looking at uh, a lot of... Uh, objects in the Milky Way, like we're looking at the center of the galaxy, uh, we're looking at star-forming regions in the large and small Magellanic clouds, which from Christchurch you can see with the naked eye, so I would assume it's the same in Australia. Yep. Okay. Well, I'm actually, I'm, a, I'm in New Zealand. Um, I'm, oh. I, I'm up in the North Island, so... <laughs> not um, far. Not far at all, no. No, and I know Christchurch well. I used to used to live down there. It's a, a great place. Well, it used to be a great place before the earthquake, but it's still a great place. Um, yeah. So, um, so you guys, how many flights are you doing from Christchurch? Well, uh, we're scheduled to do twenty-four, and uh, you know we look at things. We look at uh, planets, comets, uh, planetary nebula, supernovae. Uh, our sweet spot is star formation. And this trip, we brought two spectrometers, so we'll be doing a lot of astrochemistry. Um, you know, each element gives off a uh, spectral signature, and then uh, you know we're looking for uh, carbon lines in certain star-forming regions, and uh, of course, always looking for the uh, trace elements that form water. So uh, that keeps us pretty busy. Okay, um, so. Do you, on, on each of those 24 flights, do you always take the same route or do you um, mix it up a bit so you're getting different angles on these things? So every mission uh, is different and it is driven by, uh, the flight path is driven by the targets that we're going to look at. So we fly 10-hour missions uh, overnight. We typically leave around 7 p.m. 
and return at uh, 5.30 uh, a.m. And our profile, flight profile, is we take off, climb to 35,000 feet, and we open the door, uh, and the telescope is exposed to the elements. Uh, we put a new bulkhead forward of the telescope. So the crew is in shirt sleeve environments. The telescope's uh, open to the elements. It might be minus 60 Celsius uh, in the telescope cavity. And uh, once the telescope cools down, we start to climb and start doing our observations around uh, 38, 39,000 feet, uh, burn off some fuel, get up to 41, burn off some more fuel to 43, and some missions call for us to go to 45,000 feet. Uh, we'll fly that, and about uh, an hour before landing time, uh, we kind of shut everything down and start our descent. And uh, takes us about 30 minutes to get back on the ground uh, in Christchurch at the end of the mission. So, long nights. Yeah, definitely. So, each of those uh, those flights, are you sort of heading more southwards um, in different directions, obviously? But or, or are you covering all around? Are you going out into the Pacific? Or um... yeah, we kind of stay between uh, Tasmania. We don't go below. Uh, minus 65 degrees in latitude uh, only because we start to have uh, HF radio problems and uh, we don't want to get the uh, search and rescue scrambled for us when we're just out there boring holes in the sky. And then we go into the Pacific a little bit. So uh, each one of our flight paths is extremely different and takes about three months to develop them because the telescope will move two or three degrees in azimuth and from 20 to 60 degrees in elevation. So if, you know, as the earth rotates and the target moves, we have to turn the airplane and we're turning in, you know, half a degree, one degree, uh, heading changes all night long. Uh, so it's, it's, uh, it's pretty complex and, and pretty precise flying. Yeah, it certainly sounds that way. And uh, tell me a little bit about the telescope itself. So it's a Naismith Focus telescope. It's two and a half, two point seven meters in diameter, the main mirror, but we only image the center two and a half meters because uh, that extra 0.2 meters, uh, we don't want to be imaging the heat uh, of the telescope. So we kind of block that area out. Um, so the light comes in, hits the main mirror, bounces up to a secondary mirror, which focuses it to a tertiary mirror, which splits the signal. Uh, some of it goes into the uh, instrument and uh, some of it goes to the uh, optical cameras so we can see you know, what we're looking at. Of course, an object in infrared you can't see, so we're looking at uh, guide stars near our target. Okay, and and what sort of distance can it see? How many, how many light years or whatever it is can it see? Fifty thousand light years. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, it will do a lot of really good stuff, and we see in uh, in the infrared spectrum right now where you can see from uh, obviously zero point three zero to zero point three out to. 250 microns, and as our instruments develop 
uh, we'll be able to look extremely far into the infrared uh, up to about a thousand microns. And there's no other telescope uh, currently in service or being developed that uh, has that wavelength range. So scientifically, for those who study in the far infrared, we're the only game in town. Wow. And okay. One, one of the things that uh, the benefit of having a telescope in an airplane is we're about 80% as effective as a space telescope in uh, sensitivity. However, we can come home every night, we can recharge the cryogens, we can change the instruments, we can develop new instruments as technology comes along. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's the big benefit. Absolutely, I can see that, because um, every time that something had to be adjusted on the Hubble telescope, they had to take the shuttle up there, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. So, um, how do you, how do you uh, stop the vibration of the aircraft? Because a 747 is going to have a certain amount of vibration, isn't it? Yeah, the, uh, the aerodynamics for the telescope cavity... Uh, we're done using supercomputers at NASA and wind tunnel testing. And we have, uh, there are door tracks that move the door and the ramps that hide the door tracks are basically aerodynamic fairings that move the air up over the telescope cavity. And then the airflow reattaches and goes over the tail and off the end of the airplane. Some, uh, we have, they call it an aperture, which is essentially uh, an aft ramp inside the telescope cavity that bounces out a lot of the air. Some air does get in and vibrate the telescope, and the telescope is gyroscopically, gyroscopically isolated. Uh, then we have pneumatic uh, isolators. And if you put a laser pointer on the end of the telescope, uh, it will, at altitude, at Mach 0.85, it will hold uh, that laser point within the size of a New Zealand dollar uh, at about 500 kilometers. Wow. Oh, that's incredible. The engineering that's gone into that alone uh, is quite staggering, isn't it? Yeah, it's an engineering feat. Uh, I'm impressed every day when I get there. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, it you know, if we need to change an instrument for some we usually put one instrument on and do a campaign, an observing campaign, and then change it. It only takes about a day and a half to two days, you know, to pull one instrument, get the other instrument on, rigged, and uh, bore-sided, and we're ready to go. So we wow. can uh, we can react fairly quickly to things. Well, that's pretty impressive. How many um, how many crew are usually on board when you when you're doing the uh, the the uh, telescope? telescope uh, shots so we have we fly with a three-person uh, flight crew pilot co-pilot and flight engineer yep. and sometimes uh, down here in the Pacific we'll carry a navigator and then we have about 14 people minimum crew of 14 people on the science deck so you have uh, two telescope operators you have a mission director and uh, a mission director two, which is essentially a science flight planner. So the science flight planner, if we have to go around weather or, uh, you know, make some type of deviation, they have to replan 
the science targets on the fly. And the mission director, uh, essentially the fuselage of SOFIA is a flying mission control center. And the mission director has the same authority as the pilot to cancel the mission or uh, make changes to the, the flight plan. We have two uh, safety technicians. Uh, one of them is an avionics special specialist and the other one is a mechanical specialist. We have usually four to six instrument scientists with us. And on some flights, we'll take guest investigators who are there to you know, take their, their data. We also have a program where we take teachers. Uh, it's called the Airborne Astronomy Ambassadors Program that NASA runs, where okay. a teacher makes an application. Uh, if they're accepted, they have to uh, take a graduate level astronomy class. And uh, their application includes a proposal how they're going to take what they learn back into the community uh, for outreach. And it's really proven that uh, the teachers that come back, they motivate their students. And uh, of course, everyone's trying to get kids into STEM, science, technology, engineering, uh, math careers. So this is uh, one of the ways NASA is giving back to the community. Right. Well, that's fantastic. And a lot of good work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and when you're not in New Zealand, you're here for a month or so, but is the aircraft flying all around the world in different places when you're not here? Now, we're based uh, near Edwards Air Force Base at uh, Palmdale, California, which uh, is Air Force Plant 42. Yep. And our missions depart from Palmdale and return to, to Palmdale. So okay. if we were getting frequent flyer miles, we'd get ripped off because we depart and return to the same airport. <laughs> you know, yeah. And th this is a, a really historic uh, 747 SP. It was built in uh, May of 1977 and delivered to Pan Am. Uh, its Pan Am registration was uh, 536 Papa Alpha, and it was christened on May 20th, 1977. Uh, it was christened Clipper Lindbergh by Charles Lindbergh's widow, Anne Morrow Lindbergh, and that was the 50th anniversary of Lindbergh's flight across the Atlantic. Wow. And this airplane typically flew... San Francisco, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, and back. And then uh, it was sold to United in 1986. United flew it for uh, about 10 years. Uh, and then it was acquired by NASA. And then in April of, uh, or excuse me, in May of 2007, we had Charles Lindbergh's grandson, Eric, uh, come and rechristen the airplane. Wow, okay. So... Oh, that's great. I mean, that is an, an interesting history. And the fact that Lindbergh still stands up today as one of those uh, uh, pioneers of aviation and you guys are still pioneering uh, things in that same aircraft. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it still wears the Clipper Lindbergh titles, oh, which I think right. is pretty cool. And of course, the, the 747 SP is a lot shorter than the, the normal um, fuselage of a 747, isn't it? Yeah, about 47 feet shorter. And, you know, this airplane was designed back when uh, engine technology had not made its the, the great leap that it's done. Uh, you know, now you've got 747s and uh, 
Airbus airplanes, two engines, you know, E-tops, 180 minutes. So uh, this airplane was built to go, you know, New York to Johannesburg uh, back when that wasn't really possible. So uh, it's an interesting airplane. Indeed, it is, and uh, and quite a, a unique looking aircraft. Um, do you have any other aircraft in your, I guess you'd call it a unit or whatever, um, that that support uh, what Sophia is doing, or is it just the one one aircraft? No, it's just the one aircraft, and okay. um, you know NASA operates a DC-8 uh, that looks down, and of course we look up. And, yep. Uh, they've got another other a bunch of other science platforms. Excellent. Do you find these days with 747s getting more and more scarce that it's um, getting a bit more difficult to, to keep it in the air, or is it still is there still a lot of spare parts out there for them? It's kind of 50-50. You know, there are the, the SP-specific parts uh, are a challenge. We did buy uh, a couple air, uh, airframes and part them out. Um, okay. So we've got a lot of, a lot of uh, parts. Uh, it's the engines that are kind of giving us problems. The JT97Js that we operate, um, you know, they're the, the you can buy one for a million dollars, or you can overhaul one of our existing engines for four million. So, um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, how did you actually get involved yourself, Nick? Uh, I started at NASA in 1999. I'm a contractor. I don't actually work for NASA. Um, but I started in 1999 uh, in supercomputing and uh, worked through uh, a number of different groups. And uh, my boss recommended me for this position, and uh, I was able to uh, to get it. I was very lucky. The competition was stiff, so okay, happy to have it. And your actual um, particular role, you're, you're the um, public relations officer, aren't you? Yeah, Sophia, pub, uh, Sophia public affairs officer. Public affairs, right. And so what does that entail? Um, I write anything and everything that, that uh, needs to be written, anywhere from yep. business plans to uh, magazine articles. Um, do a lot of research on the, the history, and uh, I take a lot of science that uh, is written by the scientists and try and translate it into things that uh, the rest of us can understand. Oh, okay. That must be a bit of a challenge sometimes, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I know that you've also got quite a background uh, in other kinds of writing, uh, aviation writing. You've got many books that you've written, haven't you? Yeah, I did aviation journalism for uh, 20 years before I came to NASA and had the good fortune to have a, a lot of fantastic experiences and, and meet a lot of people. And uh, so I've written 35 books on all kinds of uh, transportation, military and local history subjects. 35 books, is, that's a, a huge amount. That's incredible. Yeah, I've how, how done you, a lot of... Go ahead. I was going to say, how did you first get into to doing that, and, and what was your first book? Uh, the first couple books I did were guidebooks to aircraft museums 
I'd gone to uh, a museum in Castle at Castle Air Force Base in California, and they did not have a guidebook. And I was complaining to my wife as we were driving away that I wanted a guidebook, and they didn't have one. And she said, "Well, why don't you write one?" Right. And I I did, and uh, you know, the the rest is kind of history. I had the good fortune to write the 50th and 60th anniversary histories of the Blue Angels. And uh, I have a big interest in the Boneyard. So I've written uh, a couple of books with that. And I, uh, I like to write with uh, other people who share the same interest. So, uh, you know, almost all of my books are co-authored with other people. And uh, that, that kind of brings a nice perspective and you know, things I don't see they, they see or they know. So uh, it makes for a great experience. And I think it's a better experience for the reader. Now you mentioned the the boneyard books. Um, aircraft boneyards, aircraft graveyards are always something that's fascinating to an aviation fan, and uh, I guess it's that sort of uh, all that history just sitting there waiting to be either destroyed or perhaps saved. So, um, you know, I guess you know writing books on those. How, how do you approach that? Did you, did you pick out particular aircraft and look at their history, or um, how did you do that? Because I, I haven't actually seen the books myself. Yeah, the, the first book I did uh, back in, I think it was 2000, with my friends uh, Scott Thompson and Kevin Grantham. Um, backing up just a little bit, I lived uh, as a kid near Chino, California. It oh, was yes. about 60 or 70 miles from my home. And I drove out there like, you know, everyone expecting to see you know, World War II airplanes stacked, and I got out there, and there wasn't one. Um, but okay. there was the Planes of Fame Museum, and, uh, you know, I, I learned a little bit there. And uh, over the years, I met, uh, like, uh, William T. Larkins, who had actually photographed Kingman and Calero Field, which is Chino. And yep. uh, uh, Bill was kind enough to, to share what he knew and some of his research and a lot of his photos and uh, Kevin, Scott, and I kind of built off what Bill had done and uh, took it an, another step further. And then there were guys uh, like in England, Martin Swan. Uh, he's been uh, studying the boneyard at Tucson. It uh, started out as Mazdick, and then it was Amark, and now it's Amarg. Yep. And uh, just following on, you know, on on the shoulders of other people have uh, taken research and combined it and my photography and my research. And uh, I did a book, AMARG, with my friends Ron Strong and Jim Dunn. And then we did a Boneyard nose art book, which was super interesting because uh, I got to interview probably six or eight of the people who've done a lot of nose art. One woman has done... I think it was 75 or 80 nose art paintings on airplanes. And, you know, that's got to be the record for one person painting nose art on military airplanes. Yeah, definitely. And uh, the nice thing is that, you know, these people that you talk to are extremely generous with their time and sharing their photos and their stories. And uh, I just had the good fortune to uh, relay it to, to my friends. That's amazing. Uh, I mean, everybody loves the bo the nose art too, and it must have been great to go around the bo the boneyards and find nose art on aircraft that 
you know, people aren't seeing them anymore. They're, they've been pushed into these graveyards. It must be quite amazing to discover their stories and find the people who put the artwork on. Yeah, and you see their, their name on the painting, and that was how that all started. It was like, okay, we see Pintaro on all these paintings, but who is that person, and how did they get to do this? So, And my other, uh, my other thing is aircraft armament, and I got started in the, the mid-1980s. Uh, I had acquired a couple aircraft gun turrets, and I had a B-17 tail gunners compartment that I was looking for parts for. Yep. And, you know, being a young guy married with a couple kids, you don't have a lot of disposable income. So we started going to airplane crash sites looking for parts. And uh, I eventually found everything I needed. And I'm having that uh, B-17 tail gunners compartment restored in Chino, California. and should be done this year. So I did uh, a book called Wreck Chasing, then I did one on commercial airplanes called Wreck Chasing 2 that was all airliners and covered things like uh, Carol Lombard's uh, crash. And that, Each of these books have been done with a number of my friends. And then recently I did Hidden Warbirds, uh, Hidden Warbirds 2, and Hidden War Ships. Uh, okay. So those have come out in the last couple of years, and that's... Uh, all devoted to airplanes that were found, uh, recovered, and restored. So that's been a real uh, interesting adventure. That sounds fantastic. I I, um, I take a lot of interest in the restorations of um, of warbirds in particular, and you know there's some great stories behind how some of them may have been la laying in a paddock or in a shed or something for 50, 60 years before somebody's found them and and got them and put them back together and got them flying again you must have just absolutely loved putting together these books I'm, I'm sure of it because there's so many stories out there aren't there yeah the the stories that I like are of the airplanes that kind of disappeared in the 1960s that yep. ended up in somebody's garage or barn and then they yep. were found within the last 10 years and, and restored wow have you got any particular favorites which which aircraft has the um, the, the greatest story for you that um, your know, greatest comeback or well, there's a couple one of course is the p61 recovered from mount cyclops in new guinea right and, you know that airplane's on its gear and uh, will probably fly you know the next five or ten years there was a, a p51 d photo reconnaissance version so an f6d uh, that had been that was in a scrapyard in the uh, 50s, and the guy who found it was uh, Mike Couches. They called him Mustang Mike because he'd buy surplus P-51s at Sacramento, yep. fly them out, overhaul them, kind of I-ran them, and uh, he'd sell them for $39.95, fully licensed and ready to go. Uh, so that's, you know, 1957 to... 1964 or five, you know, a good house was only $10,000. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, that wasn't a lot of too much money back then. And Mike kept walking by this F6D fuselage. Uh, it was a disassembled airplane. I think it was going to be uh, exported to Israel, but it got stopped on the dock, if I recall correctly. Okay. And the scrapyard guy, Mike was looking for P51H parts. And the scrapyard guy says, I'm not going to sell you anything else until you buy this F6D and get it out of my place. And he bought it, 
sold it to somebody else who took it to Missouri, which is in the central part of the United States. And it was in this guy's garage and basement and all kinds of places for 30, 35 years. And a guy named Butch Schroeder uh, found it in this guy's garage, was able to buy it and restore it. And it's now the uh, airplane Little Margaret. Uh, Oh, yep. yep. Pictures of it on the web. It's incredible. Yeah. Oh, right. Well, that's amazing. That's a great story. Now, how about, how do you, you, you've got the book Hidden Warships. How have they been recovered and restored? What What are those stories? Um, it's kind of interesting. Uh, that book covers, like, uh, the accounting of all the Japanese midget submarines. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it was, it was only up till a couple of years ago that we only knew where four of the five were. Um, I also talked to uh, the Park Service diver. Uh, he was in charge of the Park Service Underwater Archaeology Unit. Uh, he was the first person to dive on the Arizona, you know, after uh, the memorial had been built. Yep. And uh, there were a couple ships that uh, I profiled that were just kind of hidden in mothball fleets, uh, like the Tug Hoga. It... Uh, in all the p- famous pictures of Pearl Harbor, it's spraying water on the battleship Nevada when it was okay. beached at Hospital Point. And that tug was a fireboat in the city of Oakland, California, for 40 or 50 years. And then it went and sat in the mothball fleet and was finally rescued and is, I think, this year gone to a museum, excuse me, in Arkansas. And, you know, we have some Liberty ships and Victory ships that uh, came out of there the mothball fleets. Um, there was a PT boat that had been sold surplus in the sixties and it languished in the Bay area. As a matter of fact, at one point it was sunk and, uh, it's now been completely restored and is, uh, fully operational with three of the original V 12 engines. And that's up in Portland, Oregon. And it's just an incredible sight to see. Right. Right. Okay. Now, another of your books I see uh, on Amazon there, you've got uh, Bloody Skies, the U.S. 8th Air Force Battle Damage. Uh, there's some amazing, amazing stories of the aircraft that came back with battle damage, isn't there? Yeah, and in that book is the story of my mom's uncle, who was a uh, bombardier in the 390th Bomb Group. And right. all I ever knew as a kid, as a matter of fact, all my family ever knew, was that he was a bombardier, he got shot down, and uh, and died, and that's all anyone knew. Okay. And I started looking into it and found out that uh, his airplane was a B-17G called Decatur Deb, and uh, there it was hit by fighters head-on, and three of the crew got out, seven were killed, and it landed near Magdeburg, Germany. Uh, they were going to attack one of the... Uh, synthetic oil plants on May 28th of 1944. And through the years, uh, this a gentleman named Ivo de Young had written a book called Mission uh, 376 uh, about this particular mission. And yep. it was a hardbound book. It was, I don't know, 60 or $75, which is above my threshold uh, for buying a book. And uh, finally, I broke down and bought the book. And I was reading it, and I'm, I think it was on page 104. I looked down, and there's a picture of a crew that uh, 
And one of the faces looked familiar and turns out it was my mom's uncle. And then as I read it, I turned the page and there's a picture of the guy who shot him down. Uh, And Evo DeYoung was very generous in sharing not only those photos, but a number of the documents he had. Um, So I was able to, to learn, you know, what happened to my mom's uncle, uh, how he died and, uh, some other interesting things like one of the, the top turret gunner uh, flight engineer had jumped out the Bombay and got hung up on the bombs. And as the airplane's going down in flames, uh, all of a sudden all the bombs salvoed and he dropped out of the airplane. The bomb went one way, he went the other way. And we kind of think that it was, uh, or we would like to think, I should say, that it was my mom's uncle who reached over and salvoed the bomb load uh, right. and, and sent him out. And he, of course, sitting in the nose when, uh, you know, 40 FW-190s attacked their squadron. They were the low squadron head on. And uh, he was certainly wounded instantly and died in the airplane crash. Gosh, that's, that's an incredible story. What about the, um, you mentioned the Blue Angels, uh, you've written a couple of books on, on that team, and that's a, a very, very well-known, well-respected display team in, in the USA, and, and world-renowned. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what went into putting together their story? Yeah, I wrote that with uh, my friend Marja Fritzi, um, and I did the basically the beginning of the team up through uh, the end of the A4s, and she did the uh, F-18s forward. Yep. And I was able to, to you know, at the time, uh, Butch Boris, the first team leader, he was alive um, and a lot of the early pilots. So I was able to go out and interview these guys and talk to them about their experiences. And if you, Butch Boris was six foot four and he was a strapping guy and his shoulders, he would, in a Bearcat, uh, it, the cockpit was so tight that he would wear out the shoulders of his flight suit, uh, like after every two or three uh, f- demonstrations. And if you could imagine the small Bearcat turning an 11-foot diameter propeller uh, and four of them flying in formation, that was that was some real manly flying. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that team started shortly after World War II, didn't they? they In 1946. Right. And uh, and still going today, of course. So, um, quite quite a that's a I mean, in terms of display teams, that's a very long history. Yeah, of course they recently lost uh, one of their sadly lost one of their pilots a couple of weeks back. Yes, um, yeah, that's very sad. Yeah, very sad indeed. Yeah. So, um, in terms of getting back to uh, Sophia, how many more flights has has the uh, team got to do before? You depart from New Zealand again? Uh, we'll leave D- New Zealand uh, around the 24th of July. So uh, we've probably okay. got, you know, 12, 14 more flights to do. Right, right. And do you take a bit of a break between each flight so that you guys can catch up on your sleep and that sort of thing? or uh, We have two crews, uh, two science crews and two flight crews. And uh, so, you know, one flies one day and the other flies the other. We have pretty strict crew rest requirements. Um, right. So that has to be followed. And then about halfway through, 
they'll change out uh, crews and bring down two more. And we have a, an incredible maintenance team, and uh, you know they're they're busy doing whatever needs to be done, whether it's uh, you know just routine servicing or if they need to change an engine, they can do that as well. So, okay. Do the um, do the flight crews and the scientists all work permanently with NASA? You mentioned that you're contracted, or are a lot of the guys contracted in just for the season, or how does that work? So. Uh, Years ago, like 1985, the government, the U.S. government decided to get rid of most of its employees and then contract back uh, those services. So Sophia is probably 80 percent contractor staff. And uh, we draw our some of our pilots are contractor pilots. Um, The interesting thing about our pilots is that, you know, some of them may be flying an F-15 one day and then in Sophia the next. Right. So they, uh, and we have a lot of guys uh, on our crew that were, uh, you know, 747 pilots uh, in civilian life. You know, they might have. Yep. Uh, it's it seems like we have a, a, a lot of lieutenant colonels that uh, retired out of the Air Force and then flew 747s in civilian life and then came back and uh, are flying on Sophia. Right. Right. I, I can imagine that, uh, as you say, a lot of guys have got to high rank and then they've retired there must be a lot of history just among the the crew you must have a lot of uh, interesting stories going around the um the smoko room the, the crew room and in the bar and, and things like that there must be lots of interesting stories among the team yeah two of our pilots flew the 747 airborne laser for the air force and oh. uh, one of our pilots set uh he was on the b2 b1 test team I think he set 45 or 50 records in the B1. Um, it, it's just incredible. Yeah, wow. And I'm sure as a as an aviation writer like yourself, you must be thinking, oh, gosh, I want to interview this guy and I want to interview that guy. There'd be so many stories there. Yeah, my favorite thing is to sit, uh, depending on what my duties are, is to sit up in the uh, cockpit and, and – uh, you know, talk shop with these guys because right. their experiences are incredible. Absolutely, absolutely. And once the team goes back to the USA um, and it's all over for the, the New Zealand stint this year, um, what happens to you? What, what's your next move? Uh, I will go right back to work. It's The airplane will go down for some maintenance and then it'll resume science flights. Uh, we'll fly some more flights in August, September will be down for maintenance, and then we start up uh, a, a big schedule in October and November, and I'll go, you know, right back to work. Right. Uh, okay. Excellent. Well, um, uh, I guess that one of the questions that I have to ask is, uh, in the years that you've been doing this with Sophia and that NASA's been doing it, what have been the, the major sort of discoveries that you guys have made? Is there anything that stands out? Well, so Sophia is a general purpose observatory, and we get proposals from the science community for what they want to look at, and then, you know, go look at it. And then the researchers have a year to, uh, their data is proprietary for a year. And we just began full operations in 2014. So we're kind of at the end of the first proprietary period and uh, in the next year or so, we're going to have a lot of things come out. But uh, we again measured uh, 
a form of water around uh, the atmosphere of Mars uh, that was just a couple months ago that uh, came out. We've also done the Pluto occultation where Pluto passed in front of a distant star. And if you're at the center of that shadow, you can measure the physical properties of the atmosphere of the planet. And it takes, I think, forgot the number. It's like 246 years for Pluto to make a full uh, orbit of the sun. And what they think is when Pluto gets farthest away from the sun, its atmosphere basically crystallizes and collapses onto the planet. And then when it gets closer to the sun, it heats back up. And we were able to get directly in the center of the shadow. And mind you, the shadow is passing across Earth at 53,000 miles an hour. And that was uh, last year during our deployment out of Christchurch. We were able to get directly in the center of that shadow and uh, observe Pluto's atmosphere two weeks before the New Horizons uh, space probe went by. So our data is able to uh, baseline their data and vice versa. So the observations we made last year will uh, you know, be used for the next 20 or 30 years, I would think. Well, that's fantastic. Um, and is there anything else that you can think of that I haven't uh, haven't asked about that that we really need to talk about with Sophia? Um, we could be here for days. I think we covered <laughs> yeah. a, a good amount. So, yeah. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on, Nick. And and I know that our listeners are going to be very interested in this. And uh, uh, it's something quite unusual for us here in New Zealand to be seeing uh, NASA aircraft here and and NASA staff. And uh, it's it's wonderful for you to have taken the time to come on the show. Thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure, Dave. Thanks. And I encourage your listeners to uh, go to www.sofia.usra.edu. And there's a lot of good information there on our website. That's a lot of detailed information. And we have uh, an overview at Sophia, or excuse me, at nasa.gov slash Sophia. So lots of good information out there if they want to look and learn about our history and stuff. Excellent. I'll put those uh, those links into the um, show notes when uh, when the show goes out. Um, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your stay in New Zealand and uh, come back again. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Nick. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.